millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, nō mai haramai ki te au hurihanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko klak and kanan tēnei. It's Prime Minister's Science Prizes time. Every year, five prizes are awarded to established and emerging researchers, science communicators and educators at the top of their game. This year, the main prize, Te Puyaki Putayao Matua a Te Pirimia, was awarded to the multidisciplinary National Institute for Stroke and Applied Neurosciences at Auckland University of Technology. Led by Professor Valerie Fagan, the team has done extensive investigations into stroke incidences and burden worldwide. Now they are focused on developing the most cost-effective, widely applicable strategies to reduce stroke incidents, including a free mobile app called Stroke Riskometer, aimed at helping people lower their individual stroke risk. Congratulations also to Associate Professor Diane Sika Pawatonu, who won Tipuyaki Fakapa Putayao, the Science Communication Prize. Based in the University of Otago, Wellington, Diane is an immunology and biomedical scientist. The focus of her mahi is on addressing health inequities that exist for Pacific and Maori communities through research that's grounded in respectful and inclusive engagement with these communities. She was a key science communicator during the COVID-19 pandemic and a strong proponent for Pacific and Maori researchers and health professionals to be enabled to lead and make decisions for their communities. But today on Our Changing World, we meet the other three prize winners and learn a bit more about their mahi. So I'm a community ecologist and effectively that involves the study of how species interact with each other and their environment. And so we're really interested in how communities or biodiversity changes across space and through time. Um, And by space, I mean across landscapes or through river networks, and particularly how these two dimensions of space and time interact. This is Dr. Jonathan Tonkin, Associate Professor at the School of Biological Sciences at Te Whare Wangana o Waitaha, University of Canterbury, and the winner of the McDiamond Emerging Scientist Prize. Feels pretty good. Um, yeah, I feel, you know, imposter syndrome is real. Imposter syndrome. Classic scientist move. Science is really a team sport these days and, I'm, you know, winning the award is as much for the other people I've worked with as it is mine. You know, I've been incredibly lucky to have lots of great collaborators in my career and really amazing mentors as well that have helped me to put myself in a position to become competitive for such an award. And science is very much a team sport in Jonathan's large research group. And the diversity of what they're investigating is kind of head spinning. We are studying lots of different systems from 
invertebrates and streams and rivers through to fish, through to mosses in Antarctica, through to sort of host parasitoid interactions and productive landscapes. And it's, it's very diverse, but historically much of my research has been focused on rivers and mostly benthic invertebrates, so the invertebrates that live on the stones and the streams and how those are changing across different environmental conditions. One of the changing environmental conditions that Jonathan has been interested in is flow regimes. Basically, how much water is in a river. So looking at the frequencies of floods and droughts in river systems. And it's really interesting because they vary quite majorly across the world depending on where you are. And so like New Zealand, we've got this this very maritime climate that is really dominated by these frontal storms coming off the ocean versus something in the Mediterranean or continental United States that are very predictable. And the interesting thing about that is organisms have evolved very specific life history capacities and traits to capitalise on those events or cope with those types of environments. And so when those fluctuations or those frequencies change, then it's really problematic. Not all rivers are equal. So life has evolved different strategies to go with the flow. In the Colorado River Basin, for instance, all of the precipitation falls as snowfall, and so it gets locked up in the mountains, and then it all releases as this, as this really predictable peak, this snowmelt peak, during a few weeks in, in spring. And so things have evolved to really key in on that specific event. So like cottonwood trees, they release all of their seeds in synchrony with those floods. And for them to recruit a new generation of plants, the timing of that flood has to match their requirements. Whereas in New Zealand, we've got these species that sort of you know, multiple generations per year, they have what we call bet hedging strategies, in, in the invertebrates at least, where they have multiple cohorts that enables them to sort of, if one flood is catastrophic and wipes out one whole cohort, there's still another cohort to come and replace it. While Jonathan did start his career wading into rivers in Tongariro National Park to investigate these creepy crawly invertebrates, today he is almost entirely a desk-based ecologist, working with other people's data to develop models. We're really focusing on trying to build predictive models that are looking at sort of scenarios of what the future world might look like. And, you know, this is really important. You know, we've seen just how quickly the frequency of extreme floods and droughts have come around in the last decade or so, in both in New Zealand and overseas. And so we're trying to really spin our research and providing information about what that future world will look like. And, and that's across lots of different systems. There's this saying about models. All models are wrong but some models are useful. A model will never perfectly predict the future, but a good model will help us better understand ecosystem change and community interactions. And then we can use it to test different scenarios, such as a rapidly changing climate, but also direct human influence, like damming a river, or proposed management decisions, like giving braided rivers more space. There's a lot that goes into creating a helpful model, and many are set up to work off historical data. For example, maybe taking data about river flow regimes in the past, and the number of different species in a community that correlates with those river flows, and then projecting this into a new flow regime future. But Jonathan and his team are developing a new way. We're sort of flipping the way that we do things once here, and that's by forgetting about the role of species interactions and focusing on sort of basic natural history of the organisms and putting lots of fine details about the underlying natural history of a species into a model and letting the interactions between species emerge as sort of an emergent property um, of the model itself. 
The idea here is that you put in lots of details about how different species behave across their life cycles. You can then better test brand new scenarios. If we roll back to the cottonwood example that I talked about earlier in the United States, so these trees have these really specific requirements to to recruit a new generation into the landscape. And so rather than looking at 50 years of historical data of the number of cottonwoods along a river and the regime of floods or droughts and make a sort of a statistical correlation between those two things and project it forward, what we instead do is put in information about that, the cottonwood tree itself, about different stages from seedlings through to adults, and there'll be things like sort of stage-specific mortality in response to floods, in response to droughts, but also various other things like the probability of transitioning from one stage to the next, so the sort of natural senescence of a seedling through to stage one, stage two, stage three in the life history. So it's it's really the it's the underlying sort of conditions of a species that are inherent to itself. For fish, these mechanisms could be how many eggs that fish produces, survival rates and dispersal of the larva, and how an adult moves through the river at different stages of its life cycle. This will then help us look forward. It will still be the same fish, acting in its same fishy way, but it could be living in a very different world to anything we've seen to date. We know that the future is going to be completely different to what it is, what it was. Using a more mechanistic-based model, we can look into these unknown futures more confidently. For this mechanistic-type modelling, of course, you need that detailed data about the natural history of a species. And that's why PhD student Lee Wang is investigating host pathogen interactions and evolution using fruit flies and parasitoid wasps. We're standing outside of the lab that hosts my uh, colonies, basically. Welcome in. It's a long rectangular room with black metal shelving running down both sides. Stacked on the shelves are small clear plastic boxes. Because I don't really want to tamper with the room temperature in here. It smells a little funky in here. What am I smelling? You are basically smelling rotten fruit and some wine and some yeast extract. The methods that we use to capture Drosophila and then what we use to feed them. Drosophila is the scientific name for the fruit fly. You'll have seen these really small flies around your fruit or compost container. Much smaller than a housefly. They can be pale yellow to reddish brown to black depending on the species, but they have red eyes. It was quite an easy task to collect them for study. Leave some rotten fruit out, wait for flies to lay eggs, put rotten fruit into a large perspex container, wait for flies to hatch, bingo. From this fruit fly population, Lee has started some colonies in some smaller containers. After identifying them, I put them in these cultures. Lee has five containers, or cultures, in total. Three with different species of fruit fly, and two with parasitoid wasp species. Which also hatched out with the fruit flies, because, well, that's their thing. What they do is that they oviposit, or insert their eggs, into the larval stage of a Drosophila. And then as... The Drosophila grows, the egg also hatches and then absorbs whatever nutrient that the Drosophila larva has in there and then eventually kills the Drosophila and then hatches from their uh, carcass. Isn't the natural world astounding? 
To imagine these parasitoids, you can think of a teeny wasp. They have a wasp-shaped body, but they're about half the size of the fruit flies. Now he's got his colonies going, Lee can move on to the actual experiment setup. He'll start with one of the species of fruit fly and then introduce an environmental stress. For example, we have heat shocks and maybe droughts, maybe different food provisioning, which we all expect um, to happen during a climate change event. And then we subject them to a population of the parasitoid species. And then we're going to figure out how the body traits or different characteristics of the parasitoids have changed. Essentially, Lee wants to get some insight into the evolution arms race that might unfold between this host and parasite under stressful environmental conditions. He'll also track fruit fly death and survival rates after wasp attack. That can be considered as how well the Drosophila will be able to defend an attack. They may be able to form little capsules around the eggs of the parasitoids, which prevents the parasitoids from developing which eventually kills them. So that's a successful defense, which is part of the traits that we're also looking for. The lifespan of a fruit fly is 10 to 14 days, which means it doesn't take too long to run experiments through a number of generations of flies. The idea here is to gather data that can then be used in models to see how any changes would ripple out and impact other species to model host pathogen evolution under stress in general, and to see how that might change at a landscape scale. Here's Jonathan. It's very much a system to test questions that are generalizable into other systems. These types of interactions happen for any number of different species, and this is just a way of sort of getting at the underlying mechanism so we can understand what you might be able to do to better manage a landscape to, to get more production and less damage. I think one of the cool things now is that we're beginning to realise that both ecological and evolutionary dynamics happen on the same timescales. We used to think of evolution as being a really slow process, but now we're realising that it actually can play out at the same scale as ecological dynamics. And so all of these questions that were asked in isolation about evolution for the last 50 years and ecology for the last 50 years, now we can put them together and ask them in the same way as a combined thing. There's these feedbacks between ecological and evolutionary dynamics that are occurring all the time. As the fruit flies get stressed with some kind of climate change related, whether that's heat or a change of food, then the parasites that feed on them are also going to change yep. and evolve. Yeah, yeah. So, there's, yeah so there's the selection, ecological selection playing out for both of those species independently, but they're also evolving in, in response to the environmental regimes, but they're also evolving in, in response to each other. So there's that evolutionary arms race plus evolutionary adaptation to local regimes and they're all combining to make these just amazing interesting questions appear. Amazing, interesting and complicated questions I would have said. Somebody else in Jonathan's research group working on these types of questions is Dr Hao Ran Lai who has a specific focus, crop yield loss caused by pests. We want to know why do some crops suffer greater loss than other crops and why are some crops more resistant to certain pests? And we look at that in terms of their genetics and co-evolution, as well as uh, landscape and agricultural practices. He's looking across a range of different crops and their pests and setting up a model so that he can probe it for answers. About the crops... For example, a question would be, if we allow the crop to 
have a high genetic variety from uh, new seed source or improved seeds, will they be able to cope with pest attacks more rapidly? Do they develop resistance more rapidly? And about the pests. We have a wider uh, range of pests. Some of them reproduce very quickly, like bacteria and viruses. Some of them disperse around the landscape very quickly. If they are airborne and mobile, they can fly around and they can mix their genes. So this would uh, allow us to understand what pest characteristics are the ones that we want to be worried about and what are the pests that we don't have to invest too many uh, managements onto them. Overall, the goal is to see what would be the biggest management bang for buck. We want to understand the relative importance between um, the effects from coevolution, so that's the genetic side, versus the effects from uh, what we can actively manage, uh, like landscape configurations or use of pesticides, use of fertilizer. Um, once we know which are the more important factors determining you lost, we can start prioritizing the ones that, that has the highest impact on reducing you lost. So he's dealing with seeds and plants and pests and pesticides and landscape changes, all to try and minimise this loss of crops. But we're sitting in an office with neither a crop nor a field in sight. What does Haran's day actually look like? <laughs> uh, my day look like... Um, nowadays I almost work entirely in front of the computer. So it's uh, looking at the data and then analysing the data in the most robust way. So a lot of data management, talking to collaborators to get source data from different people. And because the data comes from other people, um, there's a lot of exchanges to understand the data to be able to properly analyze them. The rest of the time goes into interpreting the results. And that's interesting because you really need to dig in and understand how they collected the data Mm -hmm. and maybe what kind of holes there might be or inaccuracies you have to kind of think about when you put them in the model. Yep, yep. So um, acting like someone in between. So talking to the people who collected the data and then talking to people who wants to use the model to to build a model that makes sense to both ends, um, I guess. Of course, a large part of what Jonathan Tonkin's days involve now is looking after his research group. The students and postdoctoral researchers like Lee and Hauran that are in his lab. A job he's pretty passionate about. That's been the highlight of my career, really. I had real trouble recruiting students because of COVID. I started recruiting just before the pandemic hit. And so I, I struggled to get people into the lab for a long time. And then it's kind of come on quite quickly over the last 18 months or so. And now I've got a really a, a decent sized group. And But it's just the most exciting part of my job. It's what I'm, it's the number one priority for me is making sure everyone in the group's happy and, and has what they need and, and is asking interesting questions and things like that, yeah. Thanks to Dr. Hauran Lai and Lee Wang from the School of Biological Sciences at Te Whare Wangana o Waitaha, the University of Canterbury. And thanks and congratulations to Dr. Jonathan Tonkin, winner of the MacDiamond Emerging Scientist Prize for 2022. Of course, to get people to this stage, the prize-winning scientist stage, running a research lab and doing science to help answer tricky questions – you need young students to take an interest in science and to continue to choose to study it throughout school. And this year's Science Teacher Prize winner has been working towards ensuring that those who want to study high school science are encouraged and enabled to do so. 
science should be really fun, really engaging. Some of that engagement comes from the hands-on, the practicals. You know, you've got your whiz-bang, your natural awe and wonder of phenomena in the world around you that you can capture. Doug Walker is Head of Science at St. Patrick's College, Kilburnie, Wellington. And he's President of the New Zealand Association of Science Educators. For keeping students passionate about science, you do want to be introducing them to some of these cool demonstrations, experiments, and you want to be giving them a sense of input into that as well. So, you know, it's not just showing them something amazing, but it's about getting them to make predictions around what's going to happen and then having them vote on that as well. Originally trained as a biology teacher, an opportunity to study and teach physics has led Doug to a whole new realm of fun experiments to try. In preparation for a national conference for physics teachers, Doug worked with a colleague, Andrew Sargent, who also shared his passion for exciting demonstrations. And we spent a lot of our spare time kind of, you know, hammering things together and, and drilling. And we ended up with a whole range of resources that we presented together at this conference. And then NZIP, the New Zealand Institute of Physics, sort of got in touch with us and said, hey, could you put together some videos of some of these really cool things to share more widely? And so as part of that, we've we've produced I don't know, maybe about 30 videos so far on different cool demonstrations. We found a big old piece of wood, I think it was maybe a railway sleeper or something, and it's brilliant for any sort of talk um, experiments, particularly in level two physics. It's also just a lot of fun. This is a clip from one of the YouTube videos with a walk the plank demonstration. Andrew is balancing at the end of a large plank of wood that's set across a couple of tables in a school lab with a big box at the other end. And so what I would do is give my students a situation where I give them a box of mass and we'll measure where we're going to put it on the beam. And then we can predict how far along a student of known mass would be able to walk before um, reaching the tipping point, before falling. And so what I might do is do those calculations on the board and then grab a bit of masking tape. And then we would mark on the point at which the students have predicted. Lots of fun and you'll have a lot of entertainment value. I've seen the students tentatively walk out to the, to the point they've predicted. This isn't the whole video and there are some safety tips in there. So make sure you watch all of it before you get anyone to walk the plank. But these aren't the only videos that Doug has on YouTube. He also has a collection of NCEA science videos born out of a webinar series started before COVID-19 hit. We were all as teachers doing these exam tutorials close to the end of the year and it occurred to me that, you know, we shouldn't be reinventing the wheel and all doing the same mahi. So we collaborated and started offering these tutorials that were open to all students, not just your own students. And then when kind of, I think it was the year before COVID, but kind of COVID really hit home. Like, why are we doing this just within the region? Why aren't we pushing it out more widely and doing it online? And so I got together with um, some really great teachers and was able to offer expertise beyond my own. Um, and so we, we put together this range of webinars covering all of the science externals. And that's kind of grown and grown. It's been fascinating working with those other teachers while also getting some really rewarding feedback from, you know, students that I've never met in person um, and also some teachers who kind of sit in on those conversations and go, oh, that was really useful. I've, I've only been teaching this for a year. So that's quite rewarding. At St. Patrick's College, one of the changes that Doug has implemented, which has resulted in a big increase in the number of students doing science, was the introduction of a new general science course. 
Before this, students would do exams at year 11. If they did well enough, they could go into the academic science stream and pick physics, chemistry, biology, etc. But if they didn't, that was it for them for science learning at the school. So Doug and his team put together a general science course that students could choose to do in year 12. That was quite popular and it grew. And obviously the next step was then a year 13 general science course. And the really cool thing about that was that it provides university entrance for students. And over time, student aspirations have really shifted. So like at the beginning of last year, when I talked to the students and said, what do you want from science this year? 100% of them said university entrance. Now, I know not all of them are going to go on to university, but to have that option um, and to be aiming for that option was really exciting. And so obviously we've been able to help some of them get there. And the other big change we've made with that course has been around student agency. So students being able to select not just a, you know, a predetermined course of this standard, this standard, this standard. Um, you know, we work together on one project and then students can choose from a wide range. And one of the great things about science in NCEA, that there's a whole range of different things you can go into. And so being able to give students the options of what might be useful to them. You know, some of them want physics for vocational work or for going into the armed services. Some of them are really passionate about biology. Others love getting into chemistry or earth and space science. And so, you know, being able to offer um, an array has meant that me as a teacher, I've had to kind of change what I do. And rather than the whole class moving on at the same pace, it's offering different streams of learning, if you like, to different groups of students. And of course, those hands-on demonstrations and experiments are key. Such as the bed of nails. I've ended up with two of the first 15 rugby players like standing on this bed of nails on top of me, nails down on me. You all good there, sir? I am all good. You have a smile for the camera. Now, do we have a brave volunteer other than me? This is video footage shot by a student. Its title is, He Almost Got Hurt. In all caps. Doug is lying on his back on the ground with the bed of nails, nails down on his torso. We're going to ask your sheep to stand. They want to be involved when you can, you know, show them these things that they can play with and start to interrogate science, even if they don't realise it. That's fascinating and that, that does a lot of the hard work for you. Doug is full of these stories as we chat. Using marshmallows in a glass jar and a winekeeper to pump air out to explain about air pressure. Building a hovercraft to introduce Newton's first law. Combining a Rubens tube and smoke machine to visualise air currents in the classroom. And using a thermal camera at the zoo to ask questions about the dark splotches on giraffes. He says they work with different organisations around Wellington, such as the zoo, Niwa and Te Papa, to do science learning outside of the classroom. But Doug will take any opportunity to share his passion, even pausing the bus on a snow trip on the way up Mount Ruhapehu. On the back seat, you know, there's this packet of crisps. And as we go up the mountain, the packet of crisps starts to expand and expand. And it was just like one of those great teaching moments. It's like, OK, kids, stop the bus. Yeah, I know you're all snow seekers and, you know, skiers, snowboarders, but here's some science. <laughs> his answer is no surprise when I ask him what the best part of his job is. The kids. Yeah. Um, I spent six years on the senior leadership team at St. Pat's. I also did a, a year's course as part of that called the National Aspiring Principles Programme. Best PD I've ever done. But by the end of it, I was like, 
I don't want to be a principal. You know, I don't want to lose that contact with the classroom. And so I'm in a really happy place where I can hopefully support and be supported by a really awesome team in my department and spend time with them and with the students and get that real pa- that kick out of teaching. You know, those the moments when you see a, a sort of an epiphany dawning on a student's face. That's like that, that's what I get up for in the morning. You know, um, that re- that's a real highlight. Or the the students who you know they. Um, you're doing an experiment where they predict where a marble is going to land as it rolls off a table and they get to put a cup down. And if they catch the cup, just this cheer erupts from the students and you think, you know, this isn't working. You know, this is, this is just fun. That's not to say that there aren't challenges. At a teacher level, Doug says the main challenge is admin and trying to juggle that with doing the best for your students. But at a department and school level, he sees the main issue as getting people into the profession. I know that over the last few years, it's felt really hard to recruit and retain good teachers. And I think that's a a nationwide problem. I mean, with my subject association hat on, you know, we can do as much as we can for, you know, free memberships for student teachers, for people in their first couple of years of teaching. You know, we provide PLD and hopefully a support network. But if we can't get people into the profession, you know, then I think we're in a really dark place with the low number of teachers in key subject areas. And at a subject association level, it's, you know, the changes to NCEA and how can we support teachers as we go through this quite daunting challenge. Throughout his career, Doug has been involved in mentoring new student teachers and he's continuing that now, including giving guest lectures to student science teachers at Victoria University of Wellington and visiting students on placement to give feedback. The Prime Minister's Science Teacher Prize comes with $150,000 and Doug is keen to use this to further help teachers and students in the school. I'm hoping to establish a fund with some of the money that can provide a little bit each year to give a teacher the chance to go and experience other Kura, to be able to go and visit you know, other people, other departments, and to be able to see what they're doing and to bring it back. I've been really lucky in that, you know, sometimes other schools have invited me out and I've seen things, and often that's as useful for me as it is for them. The the things that I'm bringing back can be really game-changing. And so I'd like to give other people the opportunity to do that and to have that being an ongoing thing that, you know, can continue well beyond my time. And on the same vein, a fund that would provide a little bit of money each year for students who are in financial hardship um, so that if we have opportunities, you know, to go on trips the way there's a financial cost, if we can cover that financial cost for some of the, you know, needy students, um, then I'd, I'd, I'd hope that we could give them that opportunity to engage without money being an issue. Thanks and congratulations to Doug Walker, Head of Science at St. Patrick's College and 2022 Prime Minister's Science Teacher Prize winner. Finally, from teacher to student. One of the ways to engage students that Doug mentioned to me was entering different science competitions. And that's what inspired this year's Future Scientist Prize winner. Benji Smith was at Onslow College when he entered the International Young Physicist Tournament. But the problem that was presented for study at the tournament prompted him to explore another area of research. My research was looking at the applicability of the current models we have for predicting the deformations in materials and comparing that to experimental data I collected 
on twisting elastic bands. And I found that actually the models we currently have don't work so well for those elastic bands due to the instabilities and complex shapes that they form. Benji is now a student at Teheranawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. I'm doing a double major in physics and computer science under a Bachelor of Science. We caught up in one of his physics labs on campus so he could tell me a bit more about his research. Think of an elastic band like you'd have at home, he says. If you cut it in half to form one straight band and grab it at both ends and then start twisting... And what you'll find is it'll start making this nice helical shape looking a bit like the double helix of a DNA molecule. But as you twist it further, you'll actually find that it will stop looking like that shape and it'll start forming these knots in the elastic band where it curls around itself and all these other strange shapes. And my investigation was looking at can we predict when those shapes will occur and what effect they have on how much that elastic band resists the twist that you apply or the stretch that you apply to it. Which, you know, all sounds a bit abstract, until you consider things that might twist with a weight at the end of them. A crane holding something heavy, parachute lines, a bungee cord. I mean... I would like my bungee cord well modelled. Thank you very much. But it wasn't jumping off a bridge that inspired Benji. It was competing for his country. I got the idea for studying these elastic bands from the International Young Physicists tournament problem that I worked on last year. So that problem was balls on elastic band, where if you get two spheres, two balls and connect them with an elastic band, and then you twist that elastic band and put the balls on a table or other flat surface, then the balls will start to roll around each other in a kind of oscillating motion. And as part of that, I noticed that if you twist the elastic band a lot, you get all these weird shapes happening. And I found that that was kind of causing some trouble when I was trying to model that problem because the models I was using made all these assumptions about the band which weren't really that accurate. The way that the competition is set up kind of encourages this, says Benji. The team members are given a number of very open-ended situations to choose from to study. In his case, the ball's an elastic band rolling around and he was asked to explain the phenomenon and investigate the relevant parameters. It's a team of five people who each work on their own problem or problems and they present them and then they also oppose other people who have done those problems. So you get all those skills in and it sort of encourages students to see this is what science is really about. It's about doing that research, asking those new questions and pursuing them, trying to find those answers. Unfortunately, the team wasn't able to travel to Romania to compete in person, but they did compete online. And while they didn't take out the title then, Benji really enjoyed the taster of physics research that he got, which has ultimately led him to this win. It was wonderful news and I'm so honoured to have received the Prime Minister's Future Scientist Prize because I think it's a really great opportunity to 
dip your toes into the scientific world and it's a really nice to have that kind of encouragement for students to do that. Thanks and congratulations to Benji Smith, winner of the 2022 Prime Minister's Future Scientist Prize. Tēnā koe i mai. Thanks for listening to this episode. Ko Clerken Kananaho te kaiho tu o tēne hōtaka. I āwhina mai a Liz Garten rawa ko Ellen Rikers. I produced this one with help from Liz and Ellen. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasting series at RNZ. RNZ covered the Prime Minister's Science Prize Awards earlier this week and we'll include links to interviews with the other winners on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And we'll share them on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at RNZ Science. I'm Claire Kincannon. Have a great week. Kia pai, tō wiki. Listener.